C.H. McIntosh was a 19th century English preacher. His published works are readily available online. However, no audio recordings exist. His teachings have had a large impact on the team and direction here at Get Fed Today. As a result, we have endeavored to bring his written word to life for this podcast. The following sermon, Life and Times of Josiah, is from the Macintosh Treasury by C.H. Macintosh and is voiced by a member of the Get Fed Today team. 2,400 years have rolled away since King Josiah lived and reigned, but his history is pregnant with instruction, which can never lose its freshness or its power. The moment at which he ascended the throne of his fathers was one of peculiar gloom and heaviness. The tide of corruption, swollen by many a tributary stream, had risen to the highest point, and the sword of judgment, long held back in divine patience and long-suffering, was about to fall in terrible severity upon the city of David. The brilliant reign of Hezekiah had been followed by a long and dreary period of 55 years under the sway of his son Manasseh. And Albay, the rod of correction, had proved effectual in leading this great sinner to repentance and amendment. Yet no sooner had the scepter fallen from his hand than it was seized by his godless and impenitent son Ammon, who did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh his father. For Ammon sacrificed unto all the carved images which Manasseh his father had made, and served them, and humbled not himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more, and his servants conspired against him, and slew him in his own house. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king instead. Second Chronicles 33, 22-25 Thus then Josiah, a child of eight years, found himself on the throne of David, surrounded by the accumulated evils and errors of his father and his grandfather, by forms of corruption which had been introduced by no less a personage than Solomon himself. If the reader will just turn for a moment to 2 Kings 23, he will find a marvelous picture of the condition of things at the opening of Josiah's history. There were idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places, in the cities of Judah, and in the places round about Jerusalem. Those also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the planets, and to all the host of heaven. Ponder this. Only think of kings of Judah, successors of David, ordaining priests to burn incense to Baal. Bear in mind that to each of these kings of Judah was responsible to write him a copy of the book of law, which he was to keep by him, and which he was to read all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of his law, and those statues to do them. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 19. Alas, how sadly had they departed from all the words of the law, when they could actually set about ordaining priests to burn incense to false gods. But further, there were horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun, and that, moreover, at the entering in of the house of the Lord, and chariots of the sun, and high places which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of Zedonians, and for the Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon. All this, and most solemn, worthy of the serious consideration of the Christian reader. We certainly ought not to pass it over as a mere fragment of ancient history. It is not as though that we are reading historic records of Babylon, of Persia, or Greece, or of Rome. We should not marvel at the kings of those nations burning incense to Baal, ordaining idolatrous priests, and worshiping the hosts of heaven. But when we see the kings of Judah, the sons and the successors of David, children of Abraham, 
men who had access to the book of the law of God and who were responsible to make that book the subject of their profound and constant study. When we see such men failing under the power of the dark, debasing superstition, it sounds in our ears as a warning voice to which we cannot with impunity refuse to give heed. We should bear in mind that all these things have been written for our learning. And although it may be said of our learning, and although it may be said that we are not in danger of being led to burn incense to Baal or to worship the host of heaven, yet we may be assured that we have need to attend to the admonitions and warnings with the Holy Ghost has furnished us in the history of God's ancient people. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for admonition, on whom the ends of the ages have come. These words of the inspired apostle, though directly referring to the actings of Israel in the wilderness, may nevertheless apply to the entire history of that people, a history fraught from the deepest instruction from first to last. But how are we to account for all those gross and terrible evils into which Solomon and his successors were drawn? What was their origin? Neglect of the word of God. This was the source of all the mischief and the sorrow. Let professing Christians remember this. Let the whole church of God remember it. The neglect of the Holy Scriptures was the fruitful source of all those errors and corruptions which blot the page of Israel's history and which brought down upon them the many heavy strokes of the Jehovah's governmental rod. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Psalm 17, 4. From a child thou hast known that the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17 In these two precious quotations, we have the word of God presented in its twofold virtue. It not only perfectly preserves us from evil, but perfectly furnishes us unto all good. It keeps us from the paths of the destroyer and guides us in the ways of God. How important then is it that we study with diligent, earnest, prayerful study of the Holy Scripture? How needful to cultivate a spirit of reverential submission in all things to the authority of the Word of God. Mark how continually and how earnestly this was impressed upon the ancient people of God. How often were such accents as the following sounded in their ears. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them that ye may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, and that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Behold, I have taught you in statutes and judgments, even as the Lord your God has commanded me, that ye shall do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear it in the statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon for him? And what nation is there so great that hath statues and judgments so righteous as all is this law, which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons, and thy sons' sons. Deuteronomy 4, 1-9 
Let it be carefully noticed here that wisdom and understanding consists simply in having the commandments of God treasured in the heart. This, moreover, was to be the basis of Israel's moral greatness in the view of the nations around them. It was not the learning of the schools of Egypt or of the Chaldeans. No, it was the knowledge of the word of God and attention thereto that the spirit of implicit obedience in all things to the holy statutes and judgments of the Lord their God. This was Israel's wisdom. This their true and real greatness, this their impregnable bulwark against every foe, their moral safeguard against every evil. And does not the self-same thing hold good with respect to God's people at the present moment? Is not obedience to the word of God our wisdom, our safeguard, and our foundation of all true moral greatness? Assuredly, our wisdom is to obey. The obedient soul is wise, safe, happy, and fruitful. As it was, so it is. If we study the history of David and his successors, we shall find, without so much as a single exception, that those who yielded obedience to the commandments of God were safe, happy, prosperous, and influential. And so it will ever be. Obedience will always yield its own precious and fragrant fruits. Not that its fruits should be our motive for rendering obedience. We are called to be obedient, irrespective of everything. Now it is obvious that in order to be obedient to the word of God, we must be acquainted with it. And in order to be acquainted with it, we must carefully study it. And how should we study it? With an earnest desire to understand its contents, with profound reverence for its authority, and with an honest purpose to obey its dictates, cost what it may. If we have grace to study scripture in some small degree after this fashion, we may expect to grow in knowledge and wisdom. But alas, there is a fearful amount of ignorance of Scripture in the professing church. We are deeply impressed with a sense of this, and we may as well, at this point, just tell the reader that our main object in calling to his attention the subject of Josiah and his times is to wake up in his soul an intense desire after closer acquaintance with God's holy word and a more entire bowing down of his whole moral being, heart, conscious, and understanding to that perfect standard. We feel the commanding importance of this subject, and we must discharge what we believe as to be a sacred duty to the souls of our readers and to the truth of God. The powers of darkness are abroad. The enemy is succeeding at an appalling extent in drawing hearts after various forms of error and evil, and casting dust in the eyes of God's people, and in binding the minds of men. True, we have not gone to Ashtoreth, Chemosh, and Milcom, but we have ritualism, infidelity, spiritualism, etc., We have not to cry against burning incense to Baal and worship the host of heaven, but we have something far more ensnaring and dangerous. We have the ritualist and the sensuous and attractive rites and ceremonies. We have the rationalist with his learned and plausible reasonings. We have the spiritualist with his boasted converse with the spirits of the departed. And what multitude of other delusions and insidious attacks upon the truth. We doubt if the minds of Christians generally are alive to the real character and extent of these formidable influences. There are, at this moment, millions of souls throughout the length and breadth of the professing church who are building their hopes for eternity upon the sandy foundation, ordinances, rites, and ceremonies. There is a very marked return to the traditions of the fathers, and as they are called, an intense longing after those things which gratify the senses, music, Painting, architecture, vestments, lights, incense, all the appliance. In short, of a gorgeous and sinuous religion. 
The theology, the worship, and the discipline of the various churches of the Reformation are found in insufficient to meet the religious cravings of the people. They are too severely simple to satisfy the hearts that long for something tangible on which to lean for support and for comfort, something to feed the senses and fan the flame of devotion. Hence the strong tendency of the religious mind in the direction of what is called a ritualism. If the soul has not got hold of the truth, it there is not the living link with Christ. If supreme authority of Holy Scripture be not set up in the heart, there is no safeguard against the powerful and fascinating influences of ceremonial religiousness. The most potent efforts of mere intellectualism, eloquence, logic, and all the varied charms of literature are found to be utterly insufficient to hold that class of minds to which we are now referring. They must have the forms of offices of religion. To these they will flock, around these they will gather, and on these will build. It is painfully interesting to mark that the efforts put forth in various quarters to act upon the masses and keep the people together. It is very evident to be thoughtful Christian that the, those who put forth such efforts must sadly deficit in that profound faith in the power of the word of God and of the cross of Christ which swayed the heart of the Apostle Paul. They cannot be fully aware of the solemn fact that Satan's grand object is to keep souls in ignorance of divine revelation, to hide them from the glory of the cross and of the person of Christ. For this end, he is using, using ritualism, rationalism, and spiritualism. Now, just as, he asked, just as he used Ashtoreth, Chemosh, and Milcom in the days of Josiah, there is nothing new under the sun. The devil has ever hated the truth of God and will leave no stone unturned to keep it from acting on the heart of man. Hence it is that he writes in ceremonies for one man the powers of reason for another, and men... And when men tire of both and begin to sigh for something satisfying, he leads them into converse and communion with the spirits that departed. By all alike are souls led away from the Holy Scriptures and from the blessed Savior which those Scriptures reveal. It is solemn and affecting beyond expression to think of all this, and not less so to contemplate the lethargy and indifference of those who profess to have the truth. We do not stop to inquire what it is that ministers to this lethargic state of many professors, that is not our subject. We desire, by the grace of God, to see them thoroughly roused out of it, and to this end that we call their attention to the influences that are abroad and to the only divine safeguard against them. We cannot but feel deeply for our children, growing up in such an atmosphere as that which is present surrounds us and which will become yet darker and darker. We long to see more earnest on the part of Christians and seek and store our minds of the young and precious and soul-saving knowledge of the Word of God. The child Josiah and the child Timothy should incite us to greater diligence in the instruction of the young, whether in the bosom of the family, in the Sunday school, or in any way we can reach them. It will not do for us to fold our arms and say, when God's time comes, our children will be converted. Until then, our efforts are useless. This is a fatal mistake. God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, Hebrews 11. He blesses our prayerful efforts in the instruction of our children. And further, who can estimate that the blessing of it being early led in the right way, of having the character formed amid holy influences, and the mind stored with what that is true, pure, and lovely? On the other hand, who will undertake to set forth the evil consequences of allowing our children to grow up in an ignorance of divine things? Who can portray the evils of a polluted imagination, of a mind stored with vanity, folly, and falsehood, of a heart familiarized with infinity and scenes of moral degradation? 
We do not hesitate to say that Christians incur very heavy and awful responsibility in allowing the enemy to preoccupy the minds of their children at the very period when they are most plastic and susceptible. True, there must be the quickening power of the Holy Ghost. It is as true of the children of Christians as of any other that they must be born again. We all understand this. But does this fact touch the question of our responsibility in reference to our children? Is it to cripple our energies or to hinder our earnest efforts? Assuredly not. We are called upon by every argument, divine and human, to shield our precious little ones from every evil influence and to train them in that which is holy and good. And not only should we so act in respect to our own children, but also in respect to the thousands around us, who are like sheep having no shepherd, and who may each say, Alas, with too much truth, no man careth for my soul. May the foregoing pages be used by God's Spirit to act powerfully on the hearts of all may who read this, that so there may be a real awakening to the sense of our high and holy responsibilities to the souls around, and a shaking off of that terrible deadness and coldness over which we all have to mourn. In studying the history of Josiah and his times, we learn one special and priceless lesson, namely, the value and authority of the Word of God. It would be utterly impossible for the human language to set forth the vast importance of such a lesson. A lesson for every age, for every clime, and every condition. For the individual believer and for the whole church of God, the supreme authority of the Holy Scripture should be deeply impressed on every heart. It is only the safeguard against the many forms of error and evil which abound on every hand. Human writings no doubt have their value. They may interest the mind as a reference, but they are perfectly worthless as authority. We need to remember this. There is a strong tendency in the human mind to lean upon human authority. Hence, it has come to pass that millions throughout the professing church have virtually been deprived of altogether of the word of God, from the fact that they lived and died under the delusion that they could not know it to be the word of God apart from human authority. Now this, in reality, throwing the word of God overboard. If that word is no avail without man's authority, then we maintain it is not God's word at all. It does not matter, in the smallest degree, what the authority is, the effect is the same. God's word is declared to be insufficient without something of man to give the certainty that it is God, that it is speaking. That is a most dangerous error, and its root lies far deeper in the heart than many of us are aware. It has often been said to us when quoting passages of scripture, how do you know that this is the word of God? What is the point of such question? Plainly to overthrow the authority of the word. The heart that could suggest such an inquiry does not want to be governed by Holy Scripture at all. The will is concerned. Here lies the deep secret. There is the consciousness that the word condemns something that the heart wants to hold and cherish, and hence the effort to set the word aside altogether. But how are we to know that the book which we call the Bible is the word of God, we reply? It carries its own credentials with it. It bears its own evidence upon every page and in every paragraph and in every line. True, it has only by the teaching of the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the book, that the evidence can be weighed and the credentials appreciated. But we do not want man's voice to accredit God's book, or, if we do, we are most assuredly on infidel ground as regards divine relation. If God cannot speak directly to the heart, if he cannot give the assurance that it is he himself who speaks, then where are we? Whither shall we return? If God cannot make himself heard and understood, can man do it better? Can he improve upon God? Can man's voice give us more certainty? 
Can the authority of the church and the decrees of the general councils and the judgment of the fathers and the opinion of the doctors give us more certainty than God himself? If so, we are just as completely at sea, just as thoroughly in the dark as though God had not spoken at all. Of course, if God has not spoken, we are completely in the dark. But if he has spoken, and yet we cannot know his voice without man's authority to accredit it, where lies the difference? Is it not plain that if God in his great mercy has given us a revelation, it must be sufficient of itself? And on the other hand, that any revelation which is not sufficient of itself cannot possibly be divine? And further, is it not equally plain that he cannot believe what God says because he says it, and that we have no safer ground to go upon when man presumes to affix his accrediting seal? Let us not be misunderstood. What we insist upon is this. The all-sufficiency of a divine revelation, apart from and above all human writings, ancient, medieval, or modern. We value human writings. We value sound criticism. But we value profound and accurate scholarship. We value the light of true science and philosophy. We value the testimony of pious travelers who have sought to throw light upon the sacred text. We value all those books that open up to the, in- to the intensely interesting subject of biblical antiquities. In short, we value everything that tends to aid us in the study of the Holy Scriptures. But, after all, we return with deeper emphasis to our assertion to the all-sufficiency and supremacy of the Word of God. That Word must be received on its own divine authority, without any human recommendation, or else it is not the Word of God to us. We believe that God can give us the certainty in our own souls that the Holy Scriptures are, and in in very deed, His own Word. If he does not give it, no man can, and if he does, no man need. Thus the inspired apostle says as to his son Timothy, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned, and that from a child thou hast had known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy three fourteen through 15 How did Timothy know that the Holy Scriptures were the Word of God? He knew it by divine teaching. He knew of whom he had learned. Here lay the secret. There was a living link between the soul and God, and he recognized in Scripture the very voice of God. Thus it must ever be. It will not do merely to be convinced in the intellect by human arguments, human evidences, and human apologies that the Bible is the Word of God. We must know its power in the heart and in the conscience by divine teaching. And when this is the case, we shall no more need human proofs to the divinity of the book than we need a rushlight at noonday to prove that the sun is shining. We shall then believe that God says because he says it, and not because man accredits it, nor because we feel it. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He did not want to go to the Chaldeans or to the Egyptians in order to find out from them if he had heard what was in the reality of the word of God. No, he knew whom he had believed, and this gave him holy stability. He could say beyond all question, God has established a link between my soul and himself by means of his word, which no power of earth or hell can ever snap. This is the true ground for every believer, man, woman, or child, in all ages and under all circumstances. This was the ground for Abraham and Josiah, for Luke and Theophilus, for Paul and Timothy. 
It must be the ground for the writer and the reader of these words, else we shall never be able to stand against the rising tide of infidelity, which is sweeping away at the very foundations of which thousands of professors are reposing. However, we very well may inquire, can a merely national profession, a hereditary faith, an educational creed sustain the soul in the presence of an audacious skepticism that reasons about everything and believes nothing? Impossible. We must be able to stand before the skeptics, the rationalist, and the infidel, and say in all the calmness and the dignity of a divinely wrought faith, I know whom I have believed. Then we shall be little moved by such books as The Phases of Faith, Essays and Reviews, Broken Lights, Eke, Homo, or Colenso. They will be no more to us than gnats in the sunshine. They cannot hide from our souls the heavenly beams of our Father's revelation. God has spoken and His voice reaches the heart. It makes itself heard over the din and confusion of this world and all the strife and controversy of the profession Christians. It gives rest and peace, strength and fixedness to the believing heart and mind. The opinions of men may perplex and confound. We may not be able to read through our way the labyrinths of human systems of theology, but God's voice speaks in Holy Scripture, speaks to the heart, speaks to me. This is life and peace. It is all I want. Human writings may now go for what they are worth, seeing have I all I want in the ever-flowing fountain of inspiration, the peerless, precious volume of my God. But let us now turn to Josiah and see all that we have been dwelling upon finds an illustration of his life and times. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. 2 Chronicles 34.1 This tells us a tale as to the condition of the ways of God's people. Josiah's father had been murdered by his own servants after a brief and evil reign of two years in the 24th year of this age. Such things ought not to have been. They were the sad fruit of sin and folly, the humiliating proofs of Judah's departure from Jehovah. But God was above all, and although we should not have expected ever to find a child of eight years of age on the throne of David, yet that child could find his sure resource in the God of his fathers. So that in this case, as in all others, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The very fact of Josiah's youth and inexperience only afforded an occasion for the display of divine grace and the setting forth of the value and the power of the Word of God. This pious child was placed in a position of peculiar difficulty and temptation. He was surrounded by errors in various forms and of long standing. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after God of David his father, and in the twelfth year began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. This was a good beginning. It is a great matter, while the heart is yet tender, to have it impressed with the fear of the Lord. It preserves it from a host of evils and errors. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it taught this pious youth to know what was right and to adhere to it where unserving fixedness of purpose. There is great force and value in the expression, He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. It was not that which was right in his own eyes, nor yet in the eyes of his people, nor in the eyes of those that had gone before him, but simply what was right in the sight of the Lord. This is the solid foundation of all right action. Until the fear of the Lord gets its true place in the heart, there can be nothing right, nothing wise, and nothing holy. How can there be, if indeed fear is the beginning of wisdom? 
We may do many things through the fear of man, many things through force of habit, through surrounding influences, but never can we do what is really right in the sight of the Lord until our hearts are brought to understand the fear of his holy name. This is the grand regulating principle. It imparts seriousness, earnestness, and reality, rare and admirable qualities. It is an effectual safeguard against levity and vanity. A man or a child who habitually walks in the fear of God is always earnest and sincere, always free from trifling and affectionate, and from assumption and bombast, life has a purpose, the heart has an object, and this gives intensity to the whole course and character. But further we read of Josiah that he walked in the ways of David his father and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. What a testimony for the Holy Ghost to bear concerning a young man. How we do long for this plain decision. It is invaluable at all times, but especially in the day of laxity and latitudinarianism, of false liberality and spurious charity like the present. It imparts great peace of mind. A vacillating man is never peaceful. He's always tossed to and fro. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He tries to please everybody and in the end pleases no one. The decided man, on the contrary, is he who feels as he has to please but one. This gives unity and fixedness to the life and character. It is an immense relief to be thoroughly done with the men-pleasing and eye service to be able to fix the eye upon the master alone and go on with him through evil report, through good and report. True, we may be misunderstood and misrepresented, but that is a very small matter indeed. Our great business is to walk in the divinely appointed path, declining neither to the right hand nor to the left. We are convinced that the plain decision is the only thing for the servant of Christ at the present moment. For so surely as the devil finds us wavering, he will bring every engine into play in order to drive us completely off the plain and narrow path. May God's Spirit work more mightily in our souls and give us increased ability to say, My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. We shall now proceed to consider the great work which Josiah was raised up to accomplish. But ere doing so, we must ask the reader to notice particularly the words already referred to. Namely, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after God his father. Here we may rest assured lay the true basis of all Josiah's valuable service. He began by seeking after God. Let young Christians ponder this deeply. Hundreds, we fear, have made shipwreck by rushing prematurely into work. They have become preoccupied and engrossed with the service before the heart that was rightly established in the fear and love of God. This is a very serious error indeed, and we have met many numbers with the last few years who have fallen into it. We should ever remember that those whom God uses much in public must trains in secret, and further, that all his most honored servants have been more occupied with their master than with their work. It is not that we undervalue work, by no means, but we do find that all those who have been signally owned by God and who have pursued a long and steady course of service in Christian testimony have begun with much deep and earnest heart work and in the secret of the divine presence. And on the other hand, we have noticed that men who have rushed prematurely into public work, when they began to teach before they had begun to learn, they have speedily broken down and gone back. It is well to remember this. God's plants are deeply rooted and often slow of growth. Josiah began to seek God four years before he began his public work. 
There was in his case a firm groundwork of genuine personal piety on which to erect the superstructure of active service. This was most needful. He had a great work to do. High places and groves, carved images and molten images, abounded on all hands and called for no ordinary faithfulness and decision. Where were these to be had? In the divine treasury and there alone. Josiah was but a child, and many of those who had introduced the false worship were the men of years and experience. But he set himself to seek the Lord, and he found his resource in the God of his father David. He betook himself into the fountainhead of all wisdom and power, and there gathered up strength wherewith to gird himself for what lay before him. This, we repeat, was most needful. It was absolutely indispensable. The accumulated rubbish of ages and generations lay before him. One after another of his predecessors had added to the pile, and notwithstanding the reformation effected in the days of Hezekiah, it would seem as though all had to be done over again. Hearken to the following appalling catalog of evils and errors. In the twelfth year, Josiah began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, and the groves, and carved images, and molten images. And they break down the altars of Baalim and in his presence. And in the images that were on high above, he cut them down. And the groves, and the carved images, and the molten images, he break in pieces, and made dust of them, and strewed it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed upon them. And he burnt at the bones the priests upon their altars, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh, and Ephraim, and Simeon, even unto Naphtali, and their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves, and had beaten the graven images into powder, and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. See also the narrative given in Second Kings 23 where we have a much more detailed list of the abominations for which was devoted servant of God had to grapple. We do not quote any further. Enough has been given to show the fearful lengths to which the people of God may go once they turn aside in the smallest measure from the authority of the Holy Scripture. We feel that this is one special lesson to be learned from the deeply interesting history of the best of Judah's kings, and we fondly trust it may be learned effectually. It is indeed a grand and all-important lesson. The moment man departs, the breadth of a hair from Scripture, there is no accounting for the monstrous extravagance into which he may rush. He may feel disposed to marvel at how such a man as Solomon could ever be led to build high places for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon. But then we can easily see how that having in the first place disobeyed the word of the Lord in going to those nations for wives, he easily fell into the deeper error for adopting their worship. But let us remember that all the mischief, all the corruption and confusion, all the shame and dishonor, all the reproach and blasphemy had its origin in the neglect of the word of God. We cannot possibly ponder this fact too deeply. It is solemn, impressive, and admonitory beyond expression. It has ever been a special design of Satan to hold God's, lead God's people away from Scripture. He will use anything and everything for this end. Tradition, the church so-called, expediency, human reason, popular opinion, reputation and influence, character, position, and usefulness. All those he will use in order to get to the heart and the conscience away from that one golden sentence, that divine eternal motto, it is written. 
All that enormous pile of air which our devoted young monarch was enabled to grind into dust and beat into powder, all, all had its origin from the gross neglect of its precious sentence. It mattered little to Josiah that these things could not boast of antiquity, the authority of the fathers of the Jewish nation. Neither was he moved by the thought that these altars and high places, these groves and images, might be regarded as proofs of largeness of his of heart, breadth of mind, and liberality of spirit that spurned all narrowness, bigotry, and intolerance that would be confined within the narrow bounds of Jewish prejudice that could travel forth through the wide, wide world and embrace all in a circle of charity and brotherhood. None of these things we are persuaded moved him. If they are not based upon, thus saith the Lord, we had but one thing to do with them, and that was to beat them into powder. The various periods in the life of Josiah are very strongly marked. In the eighth year of his reign, he began to seek after the God of David his father. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. And in the eighth year, eighteenth year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shephan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Now in all this, we can mark that progress, which ever results from a real purpose of the heart to serve the Lord. The path of the just is as a shining light, which shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Such was the path of Josiah, and such too may he be path of the writer, if only he is influenced by the same earnest purpose. It does not matter what the circumstances may be. We may be surrounded by the most hostile influences, as Josiah was in his day, but a devoted heart, an earnest spirit, a fixed purpose, will, through grace, lift us above all and enable us to press forward from stage to stage to the path of true discipleship. If we study the first 12 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, we shall be able to form some idea of the condition of things in the days of Josiah. There we meet with such passages as the following. I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness who have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, and lest I confound thee before them. Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Kittim, and see, send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. So also in the opening chapter 3, we find the most terrible imagery used to set forth the base conduct of backsliding Israel and treacherous Judah. Hearken to the following glowing language in chapter 4. Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reacheth unto thy heart. My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace, because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled, my curtains in a moment. How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, and they have not known me. They are sottish children, they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. 
I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. What a vivid language. The whole scene seems in the vision of the prophet reduced to a primeval chaos and darkness. In short, nothing can be more gloomy than that these of the aspect here presented. The whole of these opening chapters could be correct, carefully studied if we would form a correct judgment of the times in which Josiah's lot was cast. They were evidently times characterized by deep-seated and widespread corruptions in every shape and form. High and low, rich and poor, learned and ignorant, prophets, priests, and people, all presented an appalling picture of hollowness, deceit, and heartless wickedness, which could only be faithfully portrayed by an inspired pen. But why dwell upon this? Why multiply quotations in proof of the low moral condition of Israel and Judah in the days of the King Josiah? Mainly to show that no matter what we may be our surroundings, we can individually serve the Lord. If only there be the purpose of heart to do so. Indeed, is it in the very darkest times that the light of true devoted shines forth most brightly. It is shown into relief by the surrounding gloom, the very circumstances which indolence and unfaithfulness would use as a plea for yielding to the current will only furnish a devoted spirit with a plea for making head against it. If Josiah had looked around him, what would he have seen? Treachery, deceit, corruption, and violence. Such was the state of a public morals. And what of religion, errors and evils in every imaginable shape? Some of these were hoary with age. They had been instituted by Solomon and left standing by Hezekiah. Their foundations had been laid amid the splendors of the reign of Israel's wisest and wealthiest monarch, and the most pious and devoted of Josiah's predecessors had left them as they found them. Who then was Josiah, that he should be presumed to overturn such a venerable institution? What right had he, a mere youth, raw and inexperienced, to set himself in opposition to men so far beyond him in wisdom and intelligence and mature judgment? Why not leave things as he found them? Why not allow the current to flow peacefully on through those channels which had conducted it for ages and generations? Disruptions are hazardous. There is always great risk in disturbing old prejudices. These and a thousand kindred questions might have doubtless have exercised the heart of Josiah, but the answer was simple, direct, clear, and conclusive. It was not the judgment of Josiah against the judgment of his predecessors, but it was the judgment of God against all. This is a most weighty principle for every child of God and every servant of Christ. Without it, we can never make head against the tide of evil which is flowing around us. It was this principle which sustained Luther in the terrible conflict which he had to wage with the whole Christendom. He too, like Josiah, had to lay the axe to the root of the old prejudices and to shake the very foundation of opinions and doctrines which had held almost universal sway in the church for over a thousand years. How was this to be done? Was it by setting up the judgment of Martin Luther against the judgment of popes and cardinals, councils and colleges, bishops and doctors? Assuredly not. This would have never brought the Reformation. It was not Luther versus Christendom, but Holy Scriptures versus error. Ponder this. We feel it as a grand and all-important lesson for this moment, as it surely was for the days of Luther and for the days of Josiah. 
We long to see the supremacy of the Holy Scripture, the paramount authority of the Word of God, the absolute sovereignty of divine revelation reverently owned throughout the length and breadth of the Church of God. We are convinced that the enemy is diligently seeking in all quarters and by all means to undermine the authority of the Word and to weaken its hold upon the human conscience. And it is because we feel that this we seek to raise and again and again a note of solemn warning, as also to set forth, according to our ability, the vital importance of submitting in all things to the inspired testimony, the voice of God in Scripture. It is not sufficient to render a merely formal assent to the popular statement. The Bible and the Bible alone is the religion of the Protestants. We want more than this. We want to be in all things absolutely governed by the authority of Scripture, not by our fellow mortals' interpretation of Scripture, but by Scripture itself. We want to have the conscious and a condition to yield at all times a true response to the teachings of the divine word. This is what we have so vividly illustrated in the life and times of Josiah, and particularly in the transactions of the 18th year of his reign, to which we shall now call to the reader's attention. This year was one of the most memorable, not only in the history of Josiah, but in the annals of Israel. It was signalized by two great facts, namely the discovery of the book of the law and of the celebration of the feast of the Passover. Stupendous facts, facts which have left their impress upon this most interesting period and rendered it preeminently fruitful in the instruction to the people of God in all ages. It is worthy to note that the discovery of the book of the law has made during the progress of Josiah's reformity measures. It affords one of the 10,000 proofs of that great practical principle that to him that hath shall more be given. And again, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And when they came to Hilkiah, the priest that delivered to the money was brought into the house of God. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah, the priest, answered and said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan carried the book to the king, and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. Second Chronicles 34, 8-19 Here we have a tender conscience bowing under the action of the word of God. This was one special charm in the character of Josiah. He was, in truth, a man of a humble and contrite spirit who trembled at the word of God. Would that we all knew more of this? It was the most valuable feature of the Christian character. We certainly do need to feel much more deeply the weight, authority, and seriousness of Scripture. Josiah had no question whatever in his mind as to the genuineness and authenticity of the words which Shephan had read in his hearing. We do not read of his asking, How am I to know that this is the word of God? No, he has trembled at it. He bowed before it. He was smitten down under it and rent his garments. He did not presume to sit in judgment upon the word of God, but as we meet and write, he allowed the word to judge him. Thus it should never be. If man is to judge Scripture, then Scripture is not the Word of God at all. But if Scripture is in the very truth the Word of God, then it must judge man. And so it is, and so it does. Scripture is the Word of God, and it judges man thoroughly. 
It lays bare the very roots of his nature. It opens up the foundations of his moral being. It holds up before him the only faithful mirror in which he can see himself perfectly reflected. This is the reason why man does not like scripture, cannot bear it, and seeks to set it aside, delights to pick holes in it, dares to sit in judgment upon it. It is not so in reference to other books. Men do not trouble themselves so much to discover and point out flaws and discrepancy in Homer or Herodotus, Aristotle or Shakespeare. No. But Scripture judges them, judges their ways, their lusts, hence the enmity of the natural mind to that most precious and marvelous book, which, as we have already remarked, carries its own credentials with it to every divinely prepared heart. There is a power in the Scripture which must bear down all before it. All must bow down under it sooner or later. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but in all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4, 12-13 Josiah found it to be even so. The word of God pierced through and through, and it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the servant of kings, saying, Go inquire the Lord for me, and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because of our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord, to do after all that is written in this book. What a striking contrast between Josiah with a contrite heart, exercised conscious and rent garments, bowing down under the mighty action of the word of God, and our modern skeptics and infidels, who with appalling audacity dare to sit in judgment upon that very same word. Oh, that men would be wise in time and bow their hearts and consciousness into reverent submission to the word of the living God before the great and terrible day of the Lord in which they shall be compelled to bow amid weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. God's word shall stand forever and it is utterly vain for man to set himself up in opposition to it or seek by his reasonings and skeptical speculations to find out errors and contradictions in it. Forever, O oh Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The word of the Lord endureth forever. Of what possible use is it, therefore, for man to resist the word of God? He can gain nothing, but oh, what may he lose? If man could prove the Bible is false, what should he gain? But if it be true after all, what does he lose? A serious inquiry. May it have its weight with any reader whose mind is at all under the influence of irrationalistic or infidel notions. We shall now proceed with our history. And Hilkiah and they that had the king appointed went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvath, the son of Hashra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they spake to her to that effect. In the opening of this paper, we are referred to the fact of a child of eight years old being on the throne of David as indicative of the condition of things amongst the people of God. Here, too, we are arrested by the fact that the prophetic office was filled by a woman. It surely tells a tale. Things were low, but the grace of God was unfailing and abundant, and Josiah was so thoroughly broken down that he was prepared to receive the communication of the mind of God through whatever channel it might reach him. This was morally lovely. 
It might, to nature's view, seem very humiliating for a king of Judah to have recourse to a woman for counsel. But then that woman was the depositary of the mind of God, and that this was quite enough for a humble and contrite spirit like Josiah's. He had thus far proved that his one grand desire was to know and do the will of God, and hence it mattered not by that vehicle the voice of God, which was conveyed to his ear, that he was prepared to hear and obey. Let us consider this. We may rest assured that herein lies the true secret of divine guidance. The meek will he guide in his judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Psalms 25, 9. Were there more of the blessed spirit of meekness among us, there would be less confusion, less controversy, less striving about words to no profit. If we were all meek, we should all be divinely guided and divinely taught, and thus we should see eye to eye. We should be of one mind and speak the same thing and avoid much sad and humbling division and heart burning. See what a full answer to the meek and contrite Josiah received from Huldah the prophetess, an answer both as to his people and as to himself. And she answered them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell ye that the man that sent you to me, thus saith the Lord. But I will bring evil upon this place, and I will upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place, and shall not be quenched. All this was but the solemn reiteration and establishment of what had already fallen upon the open and attentive ear of the king of Judah. But then it came with fresh force, emphasis, and interest, as a direct personal communication to himself. It came in force and enhanced by that earnest sentence, Tell ye the man that sent you to me. But there was more than this. There was a gracious message directly concerning Josiah himself. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire the Lord, so shall ye say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thy heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardst the word against his place, and against the inhabitants thereof, and humbledst thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes before and weep before me, I even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers. Thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. Second Chronicles 34, 23-28 And all of this is full of instruction and encouragement for us in the dark and evil day. It teaches us the immense value in the divine estimation of deep personal exercise of soul and contrition of heart. Josiah might have deemed the case hopeless, that nothing could avert the mighty tide of wrath and judgment which was about to roll over the city of Jerusalem and the land of Israel, that any moment of his must prove utterly unavailing, that the divine purpose was settled, the decree gone forth, and that, in short, he had only to stand by and let these things take their course. But Josiah did not reason thus. No, he bowed before divine testimony. He humbled himself, rent his clothes, and wept. God took knowledge of this. Josiah's penitential tears were precious to Jehovah, and though the appalling judgment had taken its course, yet the penitent escaped. And not only did he himself escape, but he became the honored instrument in the Lord, hand of delivering others also. He did not abandon himself to the influence of a pernicious fatalism, but in the brokenness of spirit and earnestness of heart he cast upon himself God. 
confessing his own sins and the sins of his people. And then when he assured of his own personal deliverance, he set himself to seek the deliverance of his brethren also. This is a fine moral lesson for the heart. May we learn it thoroughly. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor C.H. McIntosh. More of the audio of C.H. McIntosh's teaching ministry, as well as links to other C.H. McIntosh resources, can be found at getfedtoday.com.